right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is the intro for episode 81. Jason Lingren will be with me here shortly to talk about full spectrum surveillance and data collection on a level that is truly astonishing. We will run a timeline to demonstrate this in spades. To reiterate again, this channel is existing under two strikes and is one single strike away from the modern-day book burning, where all four years of telescopic observation and everything else gets burned if I draw the fourth strike. Having said that, I will only run the intro on this channel for now. Um, I will put a link down below this video to crow777radio.com where you do not need to log in. You can just listen to the first free hour. If you'd like to become a member, that's cool. If you just want the first free hour, that's cool too. Jason will probably run the first hour on Secrets of Saturn as long as we are able. Anyhow, the the censorship is full spectrum. Apparently, articles and blogs and all kinds of things I have written are getting the dangerous site when you click on the link moniker, and this is happening all over on other sites that ran articles I wrote for them. It's it's really quite un- astonishing, unbelievable. Um, the first part is malware and phishing warning, and the last part is, I don't know, dangerous or unacceptable, or I, I don't even know what the language is at this point. Um, it's all nonsense. Uh, it's just free speech. That's all it is. Anyhow, as we get into this episode, one thing that is going to come to light very quickly is if we go back even to the 70s, the idea of privacy and personal space and search and seizure were vastly, vastly different from where we are now. And this has been largely accomplished by techniques like the Overton window and other things that Jason and I will address. But you've got to realize at this point that there is no portion of an American lifetime and many other parts of the world that you could consider private on any level now. Jason and I will begin to break these things down um, from your home computer to your cell phone to any number of things we're going to point to. All this data is collected now. And unfortunately, it's been presented to us as a bit of an opt-in. I will remind everyone that I think it was 1999, uh, if I have this correct, it was the CEO of Sun Microsystems informing everyone in this country that privacy no longer existed, but we all had free email and maps for the uh, courtesy of letting them collect our data. These are key times we live in, and it's going to dictate whether we ever get back to the natural world, which appears to be a perfect system from our point of view, or whether we go into digital night. And digital night is not a perfect system. Bear, you know, keep it in mind what we are talking about. We are talking about the difference between natural things and artificial things. That is really the whole sway of the conversation we're about to have if you break it down to its most basic foundations. There is a natural world which we wholly resided in at one time, which technology and other systems that are artificial have slowly separated us away from. From our point of view, the natural system is perfect. The artificial system, which is mostly digital now, um, that's coming to bear is not a perfect system. Human beings do not make perfect systems, but that is where we're headed. And it almost seems you could almost make the assumption that what we're watching is an artificial system trying to replace our natural world. So, you know, we've got to think, do we really want a digital night? Because that's the way I view it. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingren for episode 81. Cheers. 
All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 81. I have Jason Lindgren with me. We are going to take apart the surveillance state or the idea of the surveillance state and run a timeline that really shows where we've been and where we've come. Um, anyhow, welcome, Jason. Hello, Crow. Interesting week we've had, isn't it? Yeah, another hell of a week, huh? Maybe we should sing a song like Old MacDonald had a gun. Um, <laughs> it goes on and on and on, does it not? Uh, it does on and on and on. Yeah, in the interest of maybe not putting too much heat on your YouTube channel where most of this will run other than Crow Triple Seven Radio, uh, let's just suffice it to say that it is damn astonishing, just astonishing how many people out there have guns and just need to kill some people, gophers, dogs, whatever they can get a bullet into. Um, astonishing, is it not? Yeah, no, now do we have a different word? We don't have a V word. Now do we have a T word? Because, uh, you know, maybe that's the taboo now. Yeah, I'm not sure. Texas is a big state. Maybe we can say it as long as we talk about steak or cattle or something. Toast. Texas toast. Yeah, there you go. Flying the flag a foot higher, this kind of thing. That'll that'll get them off the scent. Anyhow, Jason, we're here to speak about um, the idea of the surveillance state, and it's a it's a heck of a it's a heck of a thing, particular for particularly in my view for people who aren't quite as old as you and I are, um, because they will not have the frame of reference. You're going to open up here with some ideas that were the basis of what was in the minds of people back in the '70s. Um, I was there, I saw it, I know it to be correct. But anyhow, um, do you have anything you want to add before we jump in? No, no, let's just do this. All right, man, then it's all you. Uh, let's hit the timeline. Well, you know, before I, I actually hit the first point, when I say the surveillance state, what what comes to your mind? Like, what is it that you think about? You know, I think I may be a little different than most most people. I get what you're asking me. Like, you know, you're constantly being watched and stuff. But in my mind, having a digital background and having been online since the Internet began, um, the idea that I get of a surveillance state is absolute data collection of everywhere. That's what I think about. That That's kind of what I think about, too. Like, you know, if you're online, they're, they're watching you. If you walk into Walmart, they're watching you. If you're walking down the street, they're probably watching you in some way, shape or form. That That's what I think of. So I was kind of curious if you had a different take on that before I actually get into things here. No, but it's a good point to make before the first bullet point, because the first bullet point is an, a counterpoint on what was in the minds of Americans back in the day, um, where if someone wanted to know what was on your library card, there was hell to pay, man. People were ready to fight about that. Um, we've come a long way since that. And um, I was just reading your friend's book. I don't remember. Do you remember the name of the window, the idea of the window where new ideas are introduced? They're unacceptable. They move forward a little bit. They're controversial. Then they become accepted. And pretty soon they're great ideas. I forget the name of uh, – there's a, a scientist name for that yes, window. Yes, and I'm blanking on it too, but I know the, I know the reference. Well, that's that's what we're looking at here, <clears throat> and technology has done it. Um, and so to preface everything that's going to be in this timeline, <clears throat> technology is a hell of a thing. It's going on with the younger generation right now with kids in gaming, um, and pretty soon virtual reality is going to be prominent in the idea of gaming. And what happens is they don't touch the rules and regulations and laws we all think we have and the ideas and the belief systems. They introduce things that people get addicted to. And it can be everything from foodstuffs to technology to tools, anything. But people become so kind of inured by the introduction of whatever it is that they begin to push what's acceptable in society. But I'll make a point after you go through the first the first uh, bullet point here 
all the way back in seven, 1791. And uh, maybe you can interject, too, because I know you followed a little more closely the idea of the corporation of this country. So go ahead, man. The Overton window. Just wanted to get that out there for everyone. I couldn't remember. Yeah, there, there it is. Yeah, good grab. The Overton window. People can look this up. This this is an important idea, um, the Overton window, because it in fact demonstrates how an entire what's acceptable in society can be shifted completely disconnected from any kind of legislation, laws, morality, any of these things. It's done by manipulating what people use and, and how these things are introduced. Um, and it is very effective. Technology has done it to us in spades, and we're about to demonstrate it. So the first place I'm going to stop on our temporal journey is December 15th, 1791. The Bill of Rights goes into effect in the fledgling nation of the United States of America. The Fourth Amendment reads, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So here we are, man, um, all the way back in 1791 when we're still calling this place the United States of America before the United States Corporation, I guess. But you can probably speak to that a little more intelligently than I can. But this is a big bullet point. Back in the 70s, the average person in this country, this is what they had in their mind, is that they had the right to have privacy and that people couldn't come kick down your door. Um, it was even reflected in movies, believe it or not, and other things, this kind of mindset that is encapsulated in this. But let's reread this real quickly and think about what is being said here, regardless of whether it has merit, regardless of anything else, just think about the words. These were the ideas that people had in their mind back in the day, and think about where we are now, where the very computer in your home is a storage unit for someone else, like cookies collecting data on you right in your home. Um, you can see the idea of how technology just swept all this aside, and no one ever addressed it, no one ever asked permission, no one ever did anything. They invented a technology, and the next thing you know, you are having actual code put into your home, onto your computer to collect data on you, basically violating what is written and what I'm about to read again. The Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause. There's a thing that's fallen by the wayside. This is probable cause is something that has been beaten to a pulp and is probably not even existent in our in our in the way we live anymore. Anyhow, upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly particularly describing the place to be searched. In other words, you can't just say, I'm going to search anywhere. The persons, which means it has to be specific to people, or the things to be seized. In other words, you can't just say, we're going in here to look for illegal things. It was very specific, these ideas. Now, compare and contrast to where we find ourselves now, um, and, and cookies, cookies are a good example. Right now on your computer, there are endless cookies collecting data on you. You did not give them permission. They've been there since the get-go. Um, it's just an idea to think about. But anyhow, back over to you, Jason. Well, with this being such an important concept, it's literally laughable to think that this is even applicable today. It's it's just not. that Nothing of what this 
says is going on today. A, we are watched, surveilled, data is collected uh, endlessly. Just every minute of every day, it's going somewhere. And by the time we get to the end of this show, you're going to see just how much data. Because I will tell you how much data is being collected. And it's just ridiculous. This this amendment is uh, has been thrown out the Overton window. Well, there, there's there's quite a bit that we could talk about here. I'll make one more point before we move on. The idea of probable cause. Um, proof that we live under tyranny is visible to anyone who wants to drive, you know, from the middle of the country towards the West Coast. You cannot get into the state of California anymore without going through a checkpoint. These checkpoints search your vehicle. Where's the probable cause in that? There's the idea that somehow there's a 100-mile constitution-free zone and all this other nonsense, complete nonsense, that violates the very rights that we lived under and believed in in this country. Whether or not we had a reason to, it matters not, because the public mind, the majority of us, expected that these things were correct. And when you pull up to a place and they search you, or let's take Vegas as an example, how long will it be? before you have to walk through a radar or a uh, an x-ray machine to get into Vegas now, these backscatter radar things that are probably going to be put in there now on the tail of that nonsense. That is the ultimate intrusion, and there is no probable cause. In other, in, in other words, it doesn't matter who the hell you are or whether we suspect you of anything. You're just going to get x-rayed. Um, this all started to fall apart, really, on the back of terrorism, because once they said the word terrorist, probable cause or anything else was out the window. Anyhow, these are old ideas that were alive in my lifetime, alive in the public consciousness and defended as a thing that they expected to be correct. Um, just to put a frame frame of reference around it for younger people. Anyhow, back to you, Jason. So let's jump up to July 26th, 1908. The creation of the Borough of Investigation after Congress had adjourned for the summer. Attorney General Bonaparte, using Department of Justice expense funds, hired 34 people, including some veterans of the Secret Service, to work for a new investigative agency. Its first chief, the title of which is now director, was Stanley Finch. Bonaparte notified Congress of these actions in December 1908. The borough's first official task was visiting and making surveys of the houses of prostitution in preparation for the enforcement of what was called the White Slave Traffic Act, or the Mann Act, that was passed on June 25, 1910. In 1932, the borough was renamed the United States Borough of Investigation. The following year, it was linked to the Borough of Prohibition and rechris rechristened the Division of Investigation before finally becoming an independent service within the Department of Justice in 1935. In the same year, its name was officially changed from the Division of Investigation to the present-day Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI. So here it is, man. It's a sketchy thing, is it not? Um, you know, you're being told that Congress, even though we understand that government does not work in the way we've been told it works because of corporation, the idea being the United States versus the United States of America. We, most of us understand these things. But you're being told here that Congress was out on vacation and they decided to make the FBI. Um, with some extra money kicking around the Department of Justice. Um, interesting that the guy doing this, his name is Bonaparte. Uh, you know, you got to wonder if there's relation, but let's let's count the ways. The Bureau's first official task was visit, 
was visiting and making surveys of prostitution houses and then coming up with the White Slave Trade Act or uh, the Mann Act. And when was it passed? June 25, so at the height of the sun. Here we go in 1910, let me count the ways. The numbers never lie to you because these things are done with intent. We live in a world of cause and effect. Every cause you ever see in this world is because or every effect you ever see is because of a cause and vice versa. There, There is no coincidence by this logic. Um, everything that happens happens because something else happened. And so when we look at these things that are designed to create laws and means around the public, these are planned events. So 1910, let me count the ways. What more do we need to talk about, Jason, when we see these dates endlessly throughout the history of supposed governance? Well, the reason why I put such a wordy description in there was because these people just, as you're going to see as we keep going through this, they just do whatever the hell they want. They don't follow any legal policy or procedure. They just do whatever they want, and then Congress will ratify it later, whatever executive order needs to be put into place. But, you know, I think everybody knows what the FBI is, but none of these people in government give a crap about actually following the laws that are supposed to govern us. No, it's funny. You know, I noticed the other day, I always glance at the TV listings because it reflects what's going on in our world. And they're running this show about how all governments lie. And this supposed real journalist, you know, who's on HBO for some reason, not sure how real journalism ends up on HBO. And they're they're harping on this idea. But this bullet point points it out perfectly. Department of Justice had some extra change in its pocket. So while Congress was on vacation, they made up the FBI. I mean, really? Is that really how how things work? Is that really how a supposed democracy moves forward? And I would point out to you that, no, it's not. Um, these are people in power doing exactly as Jason just said. Um, they do what they basically want to do, and they do it by inches. They're, they play such a long game. They implement these things, and by decades and by half centuries and by century markers, they eventually get to a point where they're just out of hand, but that out of hand is the way of things at that point. Anyhow, back to you. So next, the earliest documented use of specific surveillance agencies or surveillance directives being made on the people of the United States and, of course, others around the world began in the era of World War I shortly after the United States uh, entered into the war. A code and cipher decryption unit was established and was known as the Cable and Telegraph Section. This new small organization was headquartered in Washington, D.C., of course. It began and continued as part of the war effort under the executive branch without direct congressional authorization. Later on in the war, it was relocated in the Army's organizational hierarchy several times. On July 5, 1917, Herbert O. Yardley, an American code clerk who had worked in the U.S. State Department, was assigned to head the organization. In the beginning, the unit only consisted of Yardley along with two civilian clerks. It absorbed the the Navy's cryptanalysis functions in July 1918, growing its capabilities quite a good bit. World War I ended on November 11, 1918, and the Army Cryptographic Section of Military Intelligence, or MI8, moved to New York City on May 20, 1919, where it continued intelligence activities as the Code Compilation Company, still under the direction of Yardley. The Black Chamber, which also was known as the Cipher Borough, was the United States government's first peacetime cryptoanalytic organization, which would make it the first forerunner of today's NSA, or the National Security Agency, which we'll be getting to shortly. Uh, 
The Black Chamber is said to have secured the cooperation of American telegraph companies, such as Western Union, in illegally turning over the cable traffic of foreign embassies and consulates in both Washington and New York. Eventually, almost the entire American cable industry was part of this effort. However, these companies are said to eventually withdraw their support, which could be due in part to the Radio Act of 1927, which broadened criminal offenses related to breaching the confidentiality of telegraph messages. By 1929, the State Department had withdrawn its share of the organization's funding, and the Army did not wish to foot the entire bill. Black Chamber shut down as a result of this, but there would be plenty more in the way of illegal surveillance on the people to come. So this is a heck of a bullet point. You know, you're looking all the way back at a, at a time when we're referring to communications as teletype and cable and these types of things. And, and again, um, you know, look at the dates. And the, the MI8 moves to New York City, hint, 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 on May 2019, let me count the ways. And then at one point during this bullet, you're pointing out that almost the entire American cable industry is under the aegises of people who were sur- will surveil. This is long before telephone. This is long before computers. It's the same old game. And, of course, the Radio Act, which happens in 1927, by the time that's dealt with, uh, you know, we're into 1929. Let me count the ways again. And the State Department is saying it's withdrawing funding and these types of things. Nonetheless, the picture is drawn here. From the very outset of the idea of communicating over long distances, there was cryptography and there were people collecting the data. Um, That's all there is to it. So there it is, man. Now, during World War One and into World War Two, all international mail that had passed through the U.S. Postal Service, and before I even go any further, I hope everyone knows that the U.S. Postal Service is not the U.S. Postal Service. It is not a United States borough. It is a private organization, just like so many other things like the Federal Reserve. With a general, I might add, but anyhow. Right. So all mail that had passed through the U.S. Postal Service, as well as all international cables being sent through companies such as ITT, RCA, and Western Union, were being surveilled by the Bureau of Investigation, which would later become the FBI, of course, as it is commonly known. All of this private information would be reviewed by the U.S. military. Expanding their surveillance in World War I, the War Department, and later the Office of Censorship, would monitor communications sent by mail, radio transmissions, telephone calls, or any other means of communications that they could between the United States and any foreign country. So this is the exact opposite of the image that people in the 50s, 60s, and 70s had of how private mail was and how it was a federal offense if you messed with someone's contents of their mailbox and all these things. You're looking at surveillance from the very beginning, even in as much as it is admitted here that the War Department and later the Office of Censorship, now there's an interesting name, are all up into the mail doing whatever the hell they want with it. Um, it looks like some of this happened happens as a knee-jerk response to the idea of being at war. But nonetheless, there has never been a time when mass communication was not under surveillance and being taken freely whenever the hell the powers that be felt like it. These bullet points show this in spades. Yep. Next up, we have 1927, the case of Olmstead versus the United States. The case revolved around the prosecution of Washington State resident Roy Olmsted for attempting to smuggle and sell alcohol in violation of the alcohol prohibition going on at the time. After suspecting Olmsted for several years, the government gathered evidence against him by wiretapping Olmsted's office phones, but without first obtaining a warrant. Olmsted argued in court that the police had violated his Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights. 
The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four decision, ruled that the government could use the evidence that had been obtained from the wiretapping. The exclusionary rule, which holds that illegally obtained evidence may not be used against defendants at trial, was in force at the time. However, Chief Justice William Taft cited previous decision, decisions which characterized the Fourth Amendment as only applying to physical search and seizure situations, for example, opening someone's sealed letters. So here we have the kind of loophole game. In my view, this whole entire case is a construct. If I had to guess, and I am guessing, um, I'm, I'm proffering an educated guess here that the, the, the whole reason that this went to the courts and is what it is, was to have an outcome. And as you can see here, um, they're really harping on the idea of, well, this happened before, so we can do this now. This has a lot to do with our law, where you will see that the supposed letter of the law says one thing, but the court will decide a different way because something else happened at some other time. It is the ultimate loophole to get the outcome that you want. And I would suggest again that you are looking at all the way back in 1927, people tapping, surveilling, and basically getting up in anyone's business they want to whenever they want. There it is, man. That's it. They'll just do what they do today. They'll, they'll read the laws they want and then just do whatever they damn well please anyway. Well, I would point out, Jason, that, you know, it shows the ability of people to intrude on your privacy. In this case, they're claiming that they wanted to use it as evidence in court. But what if they don't want to use evidence? What if they just want the intelligence? You know, they'll tap you all day long. Who would ever be the wiser? No one would ever be the wiser. Um, just pointing out here that they could be doing whatever they want. And as long as they never said a peep about it, who the hell would ever even know? I mean, this is going on right now. Every transmission from every computer, telephone, or otherwise is being collected. We know this now, but people don't think about it. You know why? Because it never goes to court or it never shows up on the news or they make up some ridiculous thing like Snowden um, to try to lead people down a rabbit hole. But anyhow, go ahead, man. Yes, just let me assure everyone out there after doing just this little bit of research, everything is being monitored. Everything. And always has been. There's never been a time that we've had long distance communication where the powers that had the power weren't doing whatever the hell they felt like doing. Right. Next, we have the Communications Act of 1934. This is the first law to formally address wiretapping and establishes the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC as most people know it by. Under the act, wiretapping is not illegal, but information gathered may not be disclosed. So in 1934, they set up the 633, the FCC. Um, <laughs> go ahead. Just keep pushing forward. I'm, I'm not going to rip each one of these apart on the merit of what's obvious on the face of it. Most people can see that for themselves. Go ahead, man. Jumping to the post-World War II era, we come to Project Shamrock. This was an espionage exercise that began in August of 1945. It involved the collection of all telegraphic data entering into or going out of the United States. This project was begun without judicial authorization and again was util utilizing major telecommunications companies. This project lasted all the way until 1975. <laughs> so here it is on the tale of World War One. You know, there's documentation that they're basically just collecting everything and doing whatever they want. They do it all the way up to 1975, supposedly. But this is what you have to understand. If you're talking all the way back here, you're talking basically about radio and telephone and hardwire 
or, you know, radio transmission type things for the most part. But what this bullet point really points out is what corporations, big corporations truly are. You see, most people have the idea that places like AT&T was just some genius who started and built bigger and bigger. This is not the case. These corporations were put in place, and even the corporations that may start on the ingenuity of someone are later bought. Google does it all the time now. Look at the story we're told about YouTube couple guys from this other big endeavor called PayPal go out and invent this great new thing called YouTube and Google buys it for a billion point six or whatever it was. This is the way of corporation. This is why corporation exists. And over and over in this timeline, you're going to see how a corporation like a phone company or someone else is more than happy to let the government have its way. Um, they are a very cheap date, man. And there's a reason for that. Anyhow. July 26th, 1947, the signing of the National Security Act by President Harry S. Truman. This established the National Security Council. The Central Intelligence Agency was also created, which was reorganized from the former OSS, or the Office of Strategic Services, which had been a wartime intelligence agency that functioned during World War II. It was said to have been used to coordinate espionage activities for all U.S. military branches in foreign countries, not supposed to have been domestically. Other functions of the OSS included the use of propaganda, subversion, and post-war planning. And, of course, the CIA would continue all of this, along with a whole lot more. So back in this day, the whole idea was that the CIA couldn't operate within the boundaries of the United States. That's where the FBI was. Uh, it's been time, shown time and time again that this line has been constantly blurred. But here we are, back in 47, and the OSS is including the use of propaganda, subversion, and post-war planning. Um, Government is a heck of a thing, man. We all grew up in this country with the idea of being a beacon of light and democracy. And when you begin to take apart what's actually happened, you can see that it's something else entirely, um, that the idea of elected officials really has little or no role in the overarching highest reaches of government in this country, and that they act like they're above it all. And yet here they are using subversion, propaganda, and post-war planning. Hint, hint, hint. What might that mean? That's moving the chess pieces on the board. Um, there has never been a time when in the modern age, in my view, when these overarching organizations called government or big corporation have not been moving in the direction we now see. And anyone who wants to wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee and look around at the landscape had damn well better understand where we're headed. Um, you know, Jason and I are going to do a show on cybernetics after this. Technology is not going to stop. There, There is a direction technology is headed in. And even though in this timeline, we're looking at some of the what we consider the infancy roots of telephone surveillance and these other things, it has all been leading up to an endgame. That's the main point I would make here. Next, let's go to 1949. The Armed Forces Security Agency was established to coordinate signal operations between military branches. In 1952, the NSA is officially established by President Truman with the National Security Council Directive 9 on October 24th, with the NSA officially coming to exist into existence on November 4th. Right from its inception, the organization is wiretapping and spying on American citizens, including numerous members <laughs> of the U.S. government itself. We're going to have to change that old cliche. Always remember the 4th of November, because that's when we got the <laughs> NSA. Um, I don't know. Is there anything you'd add on this? I think most people are aware that the NSA is doing whatever the hell they want and that they 
you know, they have basically like cable trunks coming under the Atlantic that they split off and they collect everything. And they have been, as a matter of fact, all the way back in the 90s when I was finishing my internet technology degree, I wrote a paper on, I forget what it was called, phalanx or I don't even know if I've got that right. But at the time, they were – other countries were arguing, the United States is collecting all the data worldwide every day, and the United States was saying, no, we don't. <laughs> well, here we are back in 1949, and they're doing what they ever did. Um, anything to add, Jason? Well, since it's in the hour two, just for the free hour out there, um, there's these things called fusion centers, and they're in every single state. And every single one of them does data collection, and the main one is in Utah. Uh, I'd break that down a, a hell of a lot more in hour two, but let's just get that out there right now. All of the data is being collected and stored. Well, you know, we've covered this. It's probably been a long time since we've covered this, but people really need to understand the power of all this data that's being collected um, with supercomputers and other type of computers that people are not familiar with that are much quicker than supercomputers. Um, they're certainly in play. We can demonstrate on some level that they've probably been in play for 10 to 20 years back, at least something like that. It gives them a bit of a time machine. There were people back as far as the early 40s who had come up with mathematical algorithms um, that were made to predict future events. And at the time, the big thing was, oh, we don't have enough data. If we could put a data collection thing every 10 feet all over the world, then we'd have enough data. Well, guess what? We do got a data collection point every 10 feet all over the whole world. It's called cell phones, telephones, you know, computers, all these things that we use everywhere. All that is being collected now. And when utilized in the way we knew they could all the way back in at least the early 40s, maybe even earlier, who knows, um, it gives them a time machine. They can predict the outcome of almost any given event with enough data points on the front end of that to predict an outcome to 99 point something 9% or something like this. So you've got to understand the importance and the power that this data collection has given some entity in this world. Anyhow, back to you, Jason. 1967, Katz versus United States. The Supreme Court overturns the precedent set by Olmstead versus the United States, determining that the Fourth Amendment does protect non-tangible possessions, such as phone calls and electronic transmissions, as well as the reasonable expectation of privacy in places like home, office, hotel room, phone booths, things like that. Examination of such places and things will now require a warrant. So this starts to point in my book to the fraudulent nature of the construct we live in. Um, what was it? It was in the 20s, the first, no, yeah, it was 27, I think, Jason, uh, during the idea of prohibition uh, when this came up. And they said, well, sure, this, you know, this isn't papers or books or things you can pick up, do it all day long. Well, here we come forward to 1967, and the exact opposite is true. So I would ask, in the lifetimes of human beings or in the histories of cultures, does the idea of what is right change? And if it does, then how could it have been right in the first place? In my mind, there are certain things. You know, law law even has a word for it, um, mala in se in Latin, the idea being that it's bad on the face of it. You would never have to tell someone if something is mala in se, you would never have to teach them, like killing a human being. You never have to teach that that's not right. It's mala in se. It's bad on the face of it. So – 
when we get into law, what we find is controlling loophole after controlling loophole, which basically is at the whim of whoever's on the Supreme Court or any given place of authority like a presidency or some other place like this, the executive branch, the judiciary, these ideas. My point here is certain things in this world could be viewed as good and correct. Other things in this world could be viewed as the opposite of that. But yet here in law, what we see is it just whatever the hell the guy sitting on the bench says at the time, what was wrong or right in 27 is now the exact opposite in 67. So think about that. Think about that carefully. Are we looking about or are we looking at people moving chess pieces here or is it something else? For me, it's something else. Either a thing is correct or it is not. And you're not going to go 10 years down the road and decide that something that was correct in this world is different unless it directly has to do with how people live and exist. Um, I don't know how well I described that, Jason. I think you made the point very well. 1968, Congress passes the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. Signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson, it is the first federal law to restrict wiretapping. However, the law makes exception for the President of the United States to override the authority and approve wiretaps if in the service of protecting the United States. So here it is again, you know, we're going to pass this law to make everyone think that they have rights, but there's still a back door. And by the way, it's the OCC, the 633 and the SSA. You know, I could go on and on. Um, count the ways in SSA. Uh, this is this. When you look at the ideas that are expressed here, they're expressed in a way that seem like they're helpful, but they're really not. Who the hell determines what is protecting the United States? You see the problem in this? Um, it's a bit like pulling up to a checkpoint now where the guy looking at you decides whether your car is going to get searched to get into the state of California. Who the hell? There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just some dude doing whatever some dude wants. Um, that's basically what we're seeing here. Unfortunately, this dude is called POTUS, so he seems to have a bit of authority, um, I would point out. Go ahead, man. Well, it also doesn't change the fact that the infrastructure is completely in place, whatever pretty little laws they want to pass and discuss publicly. Right. It's no, it's no different than an election for a high office in this country now. Um, you know, all these people go out when Trump and Hillary are running and they get so wrapped up in it and they're going to go vote. Your vote means dick. Your vote means dick. You were taught this in high school, <laughs> and still we have a whole country out there of cud-chewing herd animals who go out and vote thinking they are playing a role in the outcome of an election, and they play zero role. It is the Electoral College that seats a president, and that was put together, in fact, to be a backdoor to power for the same jackasses who have always run everything, which is basically the point of this show. So maybe I should thank them instead of calling them jackasses. Not really. Anyhow, back to you. <laughs> I told so many people that during this last election, since this one was more heated than probably anyone I I remember in my lifetime, and just it just didn't sink in, man. It's like you don't vote for the president, you don't. It's get it's over. a herd mentality. Yeah, it's a herd mentality. It's beyond the pale, Jason. It is beyond the pale. It demonstrates why the people in power push us around the way they do. The idea being that if you're a human being, you can be clever. You can use higher minded ideals. And yet what do we see everyone doing? All these cows are going to go out and vote for a thing they play no role in. I mean, how much closer to an animal could you truly be if you want to break it down? I mean, think about it. And that's the excuse that's being used for all this nonsense that we tolerate all the time is that you're a human being, but you're acting like you're an animal. So we're going to treat you like one. 
it's kind of like circular logic. But man, when you really begin to break it down, you were told in high school what seats a president and any person listening to this now can go onto the internet and discover how a president is seated, how the Electoral College works, how it was set up. I've even covered it on this show. You play no role in voting for presidents in this country. There is less democracy in the United States and probably 50 or 60 other nations you could point to, and I'm not even kidding. Um, as a matter of fact, I think I saw someone break down that Russia had more democracy than we did at one point. And I remember everyone screaming about that. Scream if you want, but until you've looked at the facts, I mean, you're basically being a herd animal, and that is what people are using to justify so much of what Jason and I cover here. The Protocols of Zion have this idea. Let the Goyim be invested in their sciences because they're Goyim. They'll never look to see if there's any value in what they're defending here. These ideas have merit. These ideas need to be considered by people. I'm not saying that the people taking advantage, have the right to take advantage. But I am telling you, this is the kind of excuse they use to do the things they're doing. And when you see things like the last election go by, it is damn hard to defend that we aren't a herd of cows out there acting in a pretty infantile manner, to be blunt about it. Anyhow, back to you, Jason. Let's go to June 17th, 1972, when the Watergate scandal begins. When five employees of President Richard Milhouse Nixon's re-election campaign are caught breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Complex in Washington, D.C. A Senate investigation and an inquiry by a special prosecutor will follow. The House Judiciary Committee issues three articles of impeachment on July 30th, 1974, indicting President Nixon for illegal wiretapping, misuse of the CIA, perjury, bribery, obstruction of justice, and other abuses of executive power. Nixon resigns before the proceedings conclude, thereby avoiding being removed from office. Uh, it's, uh, I don't even know what to do with a bullet point like this, Jason. So the impeachment articles come down in 74. Let me count the ways. This is all a construct. Um, this is this. I, I was alive during this time. I remember how freaking long this went on and how it ate every cycle of the news, how it was on every talk show. You would go watch something like Match Game, a game show, and they would be popping off about, you know, what a terrible guy Nixon is and he's a crook and this and that and the other thing. And even in the construct that it is, you can see at the root of what you're being told happened is this damn Republicans broke into the DNC, the Democrats, or the Democrats were doing something to the Democrats or the, you know, it's just furthering constructs here and eating up cycles. I would suggest to anyone who wants to take a closer look at what Watergate was about is look at what else was going on in the world. Because almost certainly when you see this much news just overwhelm the airwaves, something else is going on behind the scenes. And of course, this will go on all the way into the presidency of Gerald Ford, where he eventually pardons Nixon of all wrongdoing, again, infuriating the country and getting them all to look at the left hand where God knows what the right hand is doing. Um, these are all constructs, in my view, and it goes on to this day. It happened in New York a couple weeks ago. Uh, it happened in Texas just again. Whenever you see news dominate about a particular topic, nonstop for an egregious amount of time, you better understand what's going on. Anyhow, Jason. 1975, the Church Committee, headed by Senator Frank Church, begins investigating intelligence gathering by the CIA and the FBI and uncovers hundreds of instances of warrantless wiretappings and unauthorized electronic surveillance. 
So there it is. In 1975, they get caught. We don't really need to talk about this, right? Because they were all busted and sent to jail, right, Jason? Oh, uh, wait, what? (laughs) Exactly. This will go on and on and on in the timeline where the news will report that, oh, we caught these guys breaking the rules. Um, It's like the frog in boiling water. You know, we have these ideas of freedom and privacy and all these things. And yet through this timeline, you will see them over and over violated and eroded by the powers that be. And you will notice that no one is ever busted. Nothing is ever stopped. No one is ever even the president of the United States breaks the law. And he's not sent to jail. He's pardoned by the next president. Um, this is message control. This is the literally the boil, the, the frog in the boiling water where it's brought to bear so many times over and over and over. People just kind of accept that's the way things work. In 1978, President Peanut Farmer Jimmy Carter passes the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA, which establishes a secret court to hear requests for warrants for electronic surveillance to obtain foreign intelligence information. The government doesn't have to demonstrate probable cause of a crime, just that the purpose of the surveillance is to obtain foreign intelligence information. The court's sessions and opinions are classified. The only information we have is a yearly report to the Senate documenting the number of applications made by the government. Since 1978, the court has approved thousands of applications and rejected only 11. This whole situation will factor much more heavily into things later on. So they've only rejected 11. Dun, dun, dun. The spell is cast. Um, You know, look at what you're looking at here. The idea, again, of probable cause. And for the average ear, it probably doesn't mean much. But in a real world, you don't have a reason to do anything to people or organizations unless you suspect something is up. That's kind of the the allegory for, you know, probable cause. And here again, we're coming to a point where the president says probable cause. We don't need no damn probable cause. We do what we want here. Um, it's the slow erosion of common sense and treating other organizations or people or whatever you're doing with respect under the guise of authority. Basically, that's my point of view on this. And the reason I come down so hard is because when I was in the 60s and 70s, there was a whole different thing going on in this country that we see now. And I swear to you, you know, we're about to go into 2018. That's a date that resolves to 9-11. You just wait and see what this next year brings us, guys. You just wait and see. Anyhow, Jason. The Electronic Communications Privacy Act and the Stored Wire Electronic Communications Act are commonly referred together as the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, or the ECPA, of 1986. The ECPA updated the Federal Wiretap Act of 1968, which addressed interception of conversations using hard telephone lines, but did not apply to interception of computer and other digital and electronic communications. I'd like to point out that this is 1986, and they're already talking about things that are very Internet-like. Right. Several subsequent pieces of legislation, including the USA Patriot Act, clarify and update the ECPA to keep pace with the evolution of new communications technologies and methods, including easing restrictions on law enforcement access to stored communications in some cases. The general provisions are as follows. The ECPA, as amended, protects wire, oral, and electronic communications, while those communications are being made, are in transit, and when they are stored on computers. The act applies to email, telephone conversations, and data stored electronically. 
<laughs> well, that pretty much covers it all. But I think you're right, Jason. It really is kind of staggering that this went on in 86, because I would suggest that it's going to be almost another decade before the average American is even going to be thinking about computers in any meaningful way. But one thing that struck me about this bullet point, Jason, was the USA Patriot Act. Um they're using the United States of America prefix there, aren't they? Uh, that We should look into that. But anyhow, back to you. 1994, the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, or the CALIA, is a United States wiretapping law passed in 1994 and signed in by President Bill Clinton. Its stated purpose is to enhance the ability of law enforcement agencies to conduct lawful interceptions of communication by requiring that telecommunications carriers and manufacturers of telecommunications equipment modify and design or perhaps even redesign their equipment, facilities, and services to ensure that they have built-in capabilities for targeted surveillance allowing federal agencies to selectively wiretap any telephone traffic. It has since been extended to cover broadband internet and VoIP, which is voice over internet protocol, traffic. Some government agencies argue that it covers mass surveillance of communications rather than just tapping specific lines, and that not all Calia-based access requires a warrant. Well, there it is. All the way back in 1994, you're looking at the supposed private corporations, telecommunications company, which are supposedly independent of the government, being told by the government that, you know what, guys, you have a big hose here where a lot of water goes through. We need our own spigot so we can get as much water as we want whenever we want it. And it's done. This is 1994. In my mind, I kind of mark you know, when I when I look back through my lifetime, I really mark 94 as about when people are starting to become aware of the personal computer, the AOL idea, <clears throat> the idea that you can be online or that that's coming soon for a lot of people. That's 1994. And already here we are. Um, they're basically making a way to split off every communication, not some of them, every communication. So there it is, man, all the way back in the mid 90s. Well, it almost sounds like that they could drink from that fountain whenever they want to. But I think more of the reality is, is that they have their own fountain that's being watered from the first fountain. Right. But you see, I, one of the keys to this bullet point, in my view, is now they're trying to legitimize it. We're passing a law. Now it's lawful. And by the way, not only is it lawful, but corporation who is controlling all this data, we need a special hookup. And you're going to provide that. You're going to change the way your hardware works so that we can come screw plug in anytime we want. So it is a different mindset where we know they've been doing this secretly. Now, all of a sudden, in 94, they're going to pass a law. Now, whenever they talk about it, they're going to put the word lawful before it. And that has a heck of a sway on people listening. Uh, the real question being asked here is really, who's is the fox watching the hen house here? Because that's exactly what it seems to be. Who, who, Where is the oversight in any of this? There is no oversight in any of this. When you reread through the bullet point, what it's basically saying is we can get it all if we want it. You know, that's basically what's being said lawfully. Right. 1995, the first court-ordered wiretapping leads to the arrest and conviction of Julio Ardita, who was using computers at Harvard to hack government sites. Boy, that's got poppycock all over, doesn't it? Um, you got Harvard. You got yeah, it, it, these. This is probably, if I had to venture a guess without looking at it, just the ring of truth is not in this. This is like the the false flag of news to to further 
you know, a timeline, if I had to guess. Uh, there's just no ring of truth in that, Jason. I don't hear it. Well, he probably got offered a job. You know? <laughs> well, it's Harvard. You know, people don't understand that that MIT and places like Harvard were running the early Internet. Um, as a matter of fact, there was a place I think it was MIT. I didn't look it up before I started speaking, so I hope I have it right. That was basically issuing all the early web addresses. That was coming out of MIT. I think it was MIT. I hope I have that right. Um, there's complicity in your universities, and you and I have demonstrated it, at least back to the 60s, uh, in the manufacturing of narcotics and any number of things. And we know how they work now. They get funded. That's why education costs so much. Um, it's exclusionary, and the people that are doing the work in these places get funded as long as they produce what they're being asked to produce. Um, universities are not what you think they are. So when you see these bullet points about the first court order wiretapping in 95 and Harvard and computers and all this other nonsense, you're looking at a narrative being inserted into the timeline, in my view. Yeah, but they'll gladly take your money and uh, put you zillions of dollars into debt for the rest of your life. Yep, it's going to get worse, too. It's going to get worse. But, you know, just, just the back work that you and I have done to show the number of universities that were shown to be complicit with places like the CIA, even manufacturing things like LSD, knowing that that was going out to the youth of the 60s, it really shows that there there is some point in histories when universities truly become something other than what most people think they are. And that's not to say that the average person going to university is going there to get an education. Of course they are. I'm suggesting that the that the universities are owned lock, stock, and barrel by the people that fund them, and there's good use made of that relationship. Crow, we don't need no education. Yeah. Hey, teacher, leave them kids alone. Truer words were never spoken, right? Next, let's jump to 1996, and uh, I took this right off of the FCC website. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 is the first major overhaul of telecommunications law in almost 62 years. The goal of this new law is to let anyone enter any communications business, to let any communications business compete in any market against any other. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 has the potential to change the way we work, live, and learn. It will affect telephone service, local and long distance, cable programming and other video services, broadcast services, and services provided to schools. The Federal Communications Commission has a tremendous role to play in creating fair rules for this new era of competition. At this Internet site, we will provide information about the FCC's role in implementing this new law, how you can get involved, and how these changes might impact you. Man, this really worked, didn't it? You know, it, it prevented places from the places like Cox Cable from having a monopoly, so... This was really a good thing to have happened. We have all this competition out in the telecommunications place now. Um, I mean, on the face of it, Jason, they're telling you one thing, yet we see a different thing altogether, don't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember back when the idea that Ma Bell was a monopoly, I, I don't remember if that was the 70s, I think it might have been either that or the early 80s, um, the idea was is that they were a monopoly and they were going to be broken up. There was a similar idea put in place around the idea of PCs and Bill Gates holding monopolies on things like browsers. This went through the courts again. Um, and it's the same game being played over and over and over. Uh, in the part of the country where I am, you can't really get cable other than Cox. I've been in a number of places in this country where that's true. And while it's not true of everywhere, it's almost like they have a monopoly that's not quite a monopoly. And this is reflected in the charges that they charge people. 
I remember when I went to visit my mom and saw that her cable bill had climbed up over $250. I was incensed. Um, I got on the phone and I undid that. But it goes to show what is true and what is being reflected in this bullet. They're acting like they're introducing all this. Businesses are going to compete against each other. But in the end, we see the same game we ever saw. Yep. Now, just as an aside, I want to point out here that I got vastly different results for searches that I was doing between Google and StartPage. I was having trouble finding information specifically around the 1996 Telecommunications Act because I knew that was a significant thing. And I just want everyone to know, because we've discussed this on the past few episodes, just how much they're starting to skew information uh, if you're doing like just a simple Google search. And just to test that, I went, well, I've been using Google. I'm going to jump over to StartPage, which uses Google's search engine, but is supposed to be locked out from all their extra nonsense that they do. And indeed, the first hit was completely different than the first hit on Google. This is a good point, Jason. I would estimate that over the last maybe eight months that you and I have been doing this, it has become more difficult each week to get to good information. Um, as a matter of fact, you you note start page here. I have been noticing the same, same thing using DuckDuckGo. If you do a search on Google and then you do a search on DuckDuckGo, quite often the returns you get are staggering and sometimes the almost the entire first page can have differences. Um, there is no doubt that what we're looking at here is going to be a big part of the animal farm idea. When you go to the internet to get information and you go to a search engine, what you're basically doing is surrendering your ability to get the information you want to a third party that's going to give the, you the information they want you to have, literally, if you think about it. So when you begin to go to different search engines and see how vastly the search returns are, it should make you think. But firsthand, Jason and I, this is the 81st show that I've done, so 81 weeks in a row, and there is a huge difference from just the time that I started doing this to now on topics like this where you've got to dig in and try to find information that matters. It is getting ever more difficult, and I think the average person can see this reflected in things like even trying to take a trip online. When you try to do a search for things like plane tickets and other things now, there's all these third parties and these ads and these come visits. It's like this whole conflagration of information that's not really helpful to what you're looking for. But to get to the point, whenever you hit a search engine, you're not having much of a choice determining what you are going to get in return. A third party is doing that for you. Yes, absolutely. There's one last thing I want to squeeze into hour one here. Another interesting side note from what I can gather. The 1996 Telecommunications Act removes our rights to stop cell towers because of health concerns. And why is that? Because Section 704 of the Act states that no health or environmental concern can interfere with the placement of telecom equipment, such as cell towers and antennas. Section 704 prohibits any action that would discriminate between different providers of personal wireless services, such as cellular, wide area SMR, and broadband PCS. It also prohibits any action that would ban altogether the construction, modification, or placement of these kinds of facilities in a particular area. And this is why you see cell towers going up wherever they damn well want to put them. 
I'll tell you what, Jason, when I saw this bullet point in here, I was glad you put it. And let me first start by saying Section 704 prohibits. 704 is 11. That breaks down to the numerological 11. It's often the casting of a spell. What they're basically telling you here is telecommunications can do whatever the hell they want. It doesn't matter if it harms you. That's what's going on here. Jason, for a long time, you've been wanting to cover 5G. Um, I've been putting it off. I've been putting it off. So here at the end of hour one, what do you want to do? You want to do 5G next week? Well, there's a couple things I'd, I actually would like to do. That's definitely one of the uh, top ones, yes. So is that a yes, or should we should we talk more about what we're going to cover next week when we get this one published? Uh, I have something else I want to talk to you about privately before we make a full decision. But if we don't do 5G next week, uh, it's going to be sometime in the next, I would say, two to three shows at, at the most. Okay, because what this points out is a critical, critical thing, because 5G is coming. There are endless sources around that are saying that 5G is going to be so bad for human cells and human bodies. There are people that are connecting the idea, speed, and wherewithal of a 5G network with contributing to the transhuman agenda, the cybernetics idea, getting these infrastructural networks in place that are going to be required to take the next steps in technology, which is basically about controlling the masses of human beings that are not oligarch families. That's what this is about. When you see a bullet point like this, and Section 704 prohibits any action that would discriminate between, you know, basically, it doesn't matter if it harms you, we'll put our damn cell towers wherever you want. There are endless sources that would make the claim that it is a very tiny leap to turn a cell tower into a microwave weapon. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. I've seen a lot of people try to cover it. But what I do know as an ex-radio operator and cryptographer from the Marine Corps is that there are plenty of RF signals out there that are harmful to you. And to put a fine point on it, in my home, there is no RF. I hardwire everything. It's almost a complete pain in the butt now when I go in to try to get a router or something else where I say, I don't want wireless. And they're all, what are you talking about? Oh, well, that's how it works now. I'm all, no. Um, I want to hardwire everything. Well, there's a reason for that. All this radiation, and that's what it is, um, true radiation, not like the nuclear nonsense we're told. These radio frequencies that are everywhere are not good for us. And I think that it is probably correct that the coming 5G net networks are going to be a step up from where we currently find ourselves. I have met people in my life that actually are sickened uh, being in places where there's heavy cell activity and have changed their location of living to be farther away from big cell network areas. Um, Jason, uh, I know you've been following the 5G thing. What would you add on the on the end of this Section 704, the, the kind of casting of the spell here that sets aside health uh, to networking concerns of big corporations? Here in the, in the major city of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I can definitely tell you I've been seeing all these mysterious cell tower box things that uh, people have been pointing out. I'm now seeing them everywhere. So this thing is being built. And uh, we, no one's doing a damn thing to stop it or even really questioning it. Yeah, you know, I've been technical since the Internet began. Um, I've been a part of things. And the further it's gone on, the less I've liked it, um, to be perfectly frank. An educated estimation on my part is that technology is going to play the king's role 
and reducing humanity to a controlled mass of animals. Technology is not your friend. You think it is, but it is not. And it is not. It's because you don't control it and you never will. Not only do you not control it, you don't know who does control it. You don't know what's done with it. You don't even know the power of the data you give up so freely on Facebook to those who would use it in a way to control. You just don't. These 5G networks that are coming are a hell of a thing. For the average person who wants to know more, I would invite you to go out and learn a little bit about it. And, you know, I, I see like my nephews and all these gamers getting sucked into that kind of construct. All these things are being used with negative intention. There is no doubt. As a matter of fact, when I first heard that the gaming for young people, well, mostly young people, was making more than Hollywood was, I thought, doesn't that sum up a thing? Because we can go back and look at what Hollywood has done and the complicit nature of the programming and the complicity in messaging and all the things that Hollywood has participated in wartime to affect the minds of people who have a right to be free, in my view. Gaming is going to be this on spades. It is going to make any movie that ever came out of Hollywood look like child's play. And by the time we get to virtual virtual reality, it's going to be crazy. And this is what the 5G networks are heading towards. They're creating the infrastructure that is going to allow technology to become so ubiquitous that humanity is like, pushed aside. And I know the average year will think that that's nonsense, but you know what? There's a good possibility that in the 2020s, there will be robots, for lack of a better term, AI that can do the job of any human being better than a human being could have. When we get to that point, you've got to consider what becomes of culture, society, all the people who hold jobs. That's where all this is heading. We've done the shows on transhumanism. We've done the shows on cybernetics. It's very difficult to predict how much of that is accurate, but it is not difficult at all to understand that is the direction we are heading. There is never going to be a time when we wake up in the morning and say, guess what? Technology went backwards today. As a matter of fact, we're going to quit using so much technology. The opposite of that is true, and we all know it. Technology is going to steam forward. It is going to creep into every facet of our life, and basically... To sum up here, what that means, we have a natural environment that we call our world. We've all been separated from it. Technology separates us from it each day more and more. Our calendars, our time, the way we live, the food we eat have all separated us from a natural environment which appears to be perfect from our point of view. What it's being placed with is anti-natural. The artificial environment made by men and women, men and women do not make perfect systems. And unfortunately, the men and women making these systems do not have the interest of most people at heart. That's the truth of things. Jason, what would you add before we wrap up here? Well, if you think the surveillance was bad in the 20th century, you ain't seen nothing yet. No, it's it's going to get crazy. And, you know, we can suffice it to say here at the end of the first hour, there is no thing that you do electronically that is not being captured and used in some way. But I'll give you one more shot, Jason. I'm getting ready to close it down. Anything you want to add? 9-11 was the turning point for their excuse to do everything. And that's what we're going to attack in hour two. So join us. 9-11 is much more than a day and event. It is a bit of a religion for those who are pushing the world towards the direction it goes. But let me close by saying this. I'm still under a full frontal press on my YouTube channel, which means I can only run the intro or they could, well, they may anyhow shut me down and the nearly 80,000 followers there would not have direct access in the way they have in the past. Having said that, 
The first hour will run on Secrets of Satter. And as always, the first hour I will excuse me, put in the description, a single click takes you to Crow 777 Radio, no login required. There it is, your first free hour. I hope to see you all over at Crow 777 Radio. If you choose to be a member, that's great. If you choose just to show up for the free hour, that's great too. Anyhow, thank you all for having stopped in. We're in a brave new world now, and I hope people find value in what Jason and I are trying to proffer out to the to the general population. Anyhow, that brings episode 81 to a close covering the surveillance state. Show up over at Crow 777 and join us for the second hour. Cheers. Cheers.